Hi, I'm Jason Scorse, and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great. Well, this week's big news, um, and it's going to be big news for a while, is the leaked Supreme Court memo uh, authored by Justice Alito with five of the six right-wingers behind him. It looks like Roberts didn't, was not joining this opinion, and it is a full-on frontal assault on basic rights in the United States, on women's rights, on basic liberty. It's a real extremist opinion. And there's a lot of commentary going on about this all week. And I'm not going to talk a ton about the actual contents of the draft. Just, I will make a few comments. But mostly, as the title of this episode is, you know, is, is, is structured, it's how we got here. How did we get to the place where in 2022, women's rights are going to be eviscerated in a large part of the country and where, you know, we're basically going backwards on fundamental human rights in the United States of America? And it's a big deal. You know, it's a big deal. It's the writing's been on the wall for a while. There's, this is not really a shock. I think the the extremism of the opinion, or at least the draft opinion, is pretty shocking. I'm going to get into some of the details on this because there's a few points I do really want to highlight. But again, most of this episode is going to be focused on the Bush administration and the Obama administration and how they helped get us to this point where, again, except if you take prohibition where you know the right to alcohol was, re- was taken away and then that was repealed, America for all its oppression and white supremacy and racism, when it makes decisions in the law, they tend to expand rights. Now, again, imperfectly, and there's always chipping away at the margins, but this is going to be the first time really in you know modern history and most of the, the nation's history where a fundamental right is just taken away wholesale. So it's, a, it's again, a huge deal. I want to be clear here. Alito is the real deal in terms of he is a hardcore white supremacist theocrat. He, you know, is our version of the Iranian mullahs, our version of the Taliban. That's who he is. And when we talk about his um, his opinion, that will become clearer. Now, again, though, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the specifics because a lot of people who are both smarter than me and more informed than me on legal issues have already done this. So, for example, um, uh, on the Stay Tuned podcast with uh, Preet Bharara and Joyce Vance, they did a whole 40 minutes on this. You know, check that out. The Bulwark um, had some legal scholars on there. Um, Check that out. Kara Swisher had the actual people who had argued against Mississippi's case, which is the, the, you know, this is the case where Mississippi did the 15-week abortion ban. She had the people who argued in front of the Supreme Court, this case that's about to gut Roe versus Wade on there, right? Even uh, Josh Marshall on the Josh Marshall podcast on 
you know, talking points memo. He did a really smart thing. So there's hours of commentary on the, the specifics of the memo and on the politics related to that, which I really want to avoid. I want to try to do, again, something a little different because I want to analyze how we got here, right? This is shocking, right? That a major fundamental human right that women get to control their autonomy um, is about to be taken away. And I do want to say here, before getting in and into the, 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 the kind of the, the substance of this episode, that when I say a fundamental right is being taken away, you know, people on the anti-abortion movement will say, oh, you know, but what about the rights of the unborn and, you know, et cetera, and the fetuses. I have been clear and consistent in my entire life that the right to choose to terminate a pregnancy does not mean at any point in that pregnancy for whatever reason. So I do want to acknowledge that there, the, the, the state has an interest in a human being who is, you know, viable and alive and can feel pain and conscious before that human being is, you know, is, is given birth to, right? So there is a point while women are pregnant where the state can say, you know, that's not okay, right? To, to kill that unborn child when it's 36 weeks, 35 weeks, because you just don't feel like having a kid, right? And again, that's rare, rare cases, but I just want to be clear here that I'm not an abortion absolutist extremist. What I believe is, is particularly in that first trimester, that it should be, you know, complete access. It should be free. It should be easy to access in very safe medical conditions. After you leave this, that first trimester, there should be additional restrictions based on, is it the women's health, etc. right? So I want to be clear here that my, my, you know, strong support for a woman's right to choose is in that first trimester, and then it is qualified. So I want to be clear here. I do acknowledge that, you know, a that after a certain point of development, and this is key, not from the moment of conception, right? When there's something you know, that you can't even see on the head of a pin that has no nerve endings, no heartbeat, no pain, no consciousness, no memories, no thoughts, that is not a human being, right? I get that this is difficult, though, and where does it become a human being? Is it 12 weeks, 13 weeks? What are the signs? This is largely a scientific question, um, but I think we can be pretty confident, in fact, 100% confident that that first trimester, that the termination of a pregnancy is not destroying a conscious life form that has feelings and can feel pain, right? And so that is what I'm talking about here. And so taking that away, telling a woman that no matter what, she is forced to give birth, even if it was a you know a mistake in the in you know in the birth control, if she's raped, if it's incest, right? If she's having huge health complications, if the the baby is you know going to be severely deformed and not really have any type of quality of life, and you force that person to to give birth, that is just a huge huge imposition on that person's liberty, and that is again why I think this is akin to, you know, extreme forms of, you know, religious persecution, right? When you're imposing your religious view on people, that is a form of, you know, again, right-wing extremism. So with that out of the way, let me just say none of this really should be a surprise in the sense that this is what the right has been saying they want to do for almost 50 years, right? 
but many people haven't taken that threat seriously, and that's going to be a big theme of this episode, right? How we got here. But before we look back to you know Bush two and Obama, I want to just comment on a couple parts of the draft opinion that are particularly illuminating and show what a fucking insane lunatic Alito is, as well as a liar and a fraud. Right, so a key part of his opinion, he says, because almost everyone has access to good health care and good you know, prenatal services, forcing a woman to have a child is not a big deal. Now, of course, I'm paraphrasing here. He doesn't say it in those words, but that's basically what he says, right? That Hey, we're America, we're advanced country, people have access to services. This isn't a huge imposition to force someone to have a child. You can put them up for adoption, etc., etc. Now think about this for a second. Alito is the same motherfucker who, along with his right-wing colleagues, invalidated the Medicaid expansion in the Affordable Care Act. Right Now, it's important to note, nobody thought that the Medicaid requirements in Obamacare, there was a, it was a mandatory 50-state extension of Medicaid, And nobody thought that that was under threat from the court. But when the court did come out and allow Obamacare to continue, they said, except the Medicaid expansion, that that is is an unjust, unconstitutional imposition of federal authority on the states. Now, keep in mind, the the Obamacare, the federal government pays 90% plus of all the Medicaid payments for the poorest residents of those states. All it does is require states to pay up to 10% of the cost of Medicaid for the poorest, um, their poorest citizens. And Alito and his fucking right-wing nutjob colleagues said that was unconstitutional. 10% making, you know, for every dollar, making the states chip in 5 cents, 10 states with 10 cents was unconstitutional. So then what happened? GOP governors across the country said, fuck the poor in their own states. And the results are, right, more than 10 years after the ACA passed, tens of millions of poor Americans in red states, exclusively red states, all Democratic states have passed this Medicaid expansion, um, still don't have Medicaid more, you know, for, for their poorest residents. So it's these same motherfuckers who have been literally doing everything in their power to deny the poorest people health care and take away benefits from people, are saying, hey, well, every, since everyone has health care, just about everyone has health care, forced birth is okay. This is pure gaslighting, and it is evil. But it gets worse. Alito says that if women want abortion rights, they can exercise their political power to get it. He's basically saying, look, we're going to invalidate Roe versus Wade, but now it goes to the states. And so women have votes. And if you really want abortion access, you can vote in Alabama, in Mississippi, in Florida to get abortion access. We're not telling you it's impossible. You know, just go exercise your rights. And again, this from the same motherfucker who has done everything he can to weaken voting rights and to green light the most extreme forms of partisan gerrymandering. So what he's saying, in effect, is, hey, women, if you want abortion rights, go get it done in the completely rigged, gerrymandered, voter-suppressed system that I helped to create that dilutes your power severely and makes it almost impossible for the majority to get its will enacted into law. Right? So this is pure gaslighting. 
right? I mean, again, Alito and his crew have been actively, you know, allowing gerrymandering. He was one of the key authors in the Citizens United, allowing unlimited dark money into politics. You know, he's the one who literally invalidated the Medicaid expansion in Obamacare, saying that, no, it, you know, you, you it's not mandatory. It's a huge red states, Texas, Florida, the poorest residents don't have access to Medicaid in which the federal government would pay 90% plus. So these states have said, instead of chipping in a few pennies, we're going to forego billions in federal revenue because we don't want our poor citizens to have access to health care, right? So this illustrates a key point that I've made about conservatives in America for a long time. And I really want to emphasize this. They simply have to lie about their agenda because they know it's so evil that they can't pull the mask off all the way and show their true colors to the public. I've also said, as a liberal and progressive, I can stand up to any right winger anywhere in the country and say with 100% transparency and honesty what my values and agenda. I can tell them all the specifics. I can tell them what I believe on health care, on taxes, on the climate emergency, on immigration. But the right wing cannot. They have to lie. Even members of the Supreme Court who have lifetime appointments. Think about that. He has a lifetime appointment. He can do whatever the fuck he wants. He can't, you know, he, there's no, the chance of him getting impeached is basically zero. And he has a lifetime appointment. And yet, in his opinion, he has to gaslight and lie because he cannot face the truth about what his true values are. Now, what would, what would he have said if it was his true values, right? So on the issue of, of health care, Alito would have said something like, well, in America, most people have health care. And if they don't, they can try to get some charity or hopefully they can have some friends or family to help figure things out. So criminalizing abortion isn't that big a deal for most people. That's his true opinion, right? His true opinion is, yeah, it's going to be tough for some people. Yeah, millions of people don't have health care. They're poor. But, you know, figure it out. You know, too bad. Figure it out. But, of course, he couldn't do that because that sounds so callous and sociopathic. With respect to, you know, the, the gerrymandering and the politics, instead of saying, women, you have political rights, you can go exercise them. What he could have said, with his more, which is truthful, is said, yeah, states are gerrymandered to bloody hell. And yeah, it's hard to get things passed in many red states because they've made it so that majority will doesn't really do much. But if women really, really work hard, maybe someday they can have their voices heard in Texas or Alabama or Florida. And in the meantime, you know, just live with it, deal. Right? That's the truth. That's what he actually believes. But again, he is incapable of saying the truth because it just sounds too insane and evil. Right? So they lie their asses off. Right? And they show their true colors. Right? Alito is not some deep constitutional scholar. He's a fucking partisan hack and a sociopath. Now, we really can't have a political system that operates effectively where one of the main two political parties simply lies at a matter of course on every issue, right? And again, the general public doesn't know this level of details, right? The details that I just laid out, many of you listeners might know, but most in the public don't realize the rank hypocrisy here, right? And, and that's, you know, and that's why we, we can't have nice things, right? Now, let's also be clear here 
that if the anti-abortion movement was even half serious, they'd be fighting hard for contraception to make sure people didn't have unwanted pregnancies. They'd be fighting you know, hardcore for universal health care, for paid family leave, for daycare. But of course, they're doing none of that. In fact, they're trying to block that and prevent that. So pro-life, my fucking ass. Give me a break. This is like the most biggest pro-death, death cult party, you know, that we've ever seen in the United States of America. And that they have the nerve to call them pro-life because they want to force poor women to have children who don't even have health care and good jobs and good wages. It's just, it's just fucking sick. It's sociopathic and it's sick. But, you know, this is the right wing in America. They're running the biggest scam on, you know, half the public. And they're the biggest charade in our nation's history. I mean, it's just one big charade and scam. And I want to tell you, if you think they're going to stop at criminalizing abortion in red states and they're just going to, like, let it be, you're delusional. They want to take America back to the 18th century. And, you know, it's going to be hard for them to do that. But that's their goal. It took them 50 years to do this piece. You know, we'll see what's next. But trust me, it's not going to be like, oh, Roe versus Wade got overturned. Now, you know, we'll just let the states decide and everyone can do their thing. Like, if you think that's the truth, you just have not been paying attention to the right wing. These are crystal fascists. And just watch. This is like they're going to, you know, they're, they're going to be super motivated to go to the next level. And in fact, Alito's opinion gave them a roadmap to do that because he's invalidating all types of liberty um, in that opinion. So anyway, after the break, I want to come back with really more of the, 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 what my intent here was, which is to say, how did we get here? And that's going to be um, you know, most of the rest of the episode. Okay, so how did we get to this place, right? So I want to go back to Bush too, right? So he was, you know, he stole the election in 2000 and came into office in 2001. A key thing that people don't remember about Bush, and again, you know, this is the, the sad reality that Americans' attention span is about that of a gnat. And, you know, in relative to Trump, you know, Bush looks like, you know, the kind of, the little jolly little elf, and he's kind of not that dangerous. Bush, too, was incredibly dangerous and did incredible things that set up the moment we're in today. He was a Christian extremist and still is. Of course, he wasn't fully as racist and fascist as Trump, but he was actually pretty close. His administration was full of theocrats, evangelicals, and other Christian extremists, including Brett Kavanaugh. Right, so there you go. There's link one, Brett Kavanaugh from the Bush 2 administration, who is one of the five that is gutting Roe versus Wade. But the big tell on who Bush was and how he set up um, this moment 
uh, are two key mo- two key instances. First, when Sandra Day O'Connor stepped down from the court, Bush two nominated Harriet Myers. Okay, Harriet Myers was on his legal team in the White House. She was a relatively unknown quantity, right? So he wanted to you know put another woman on the court. Sandra Day O'Connor was relatively moderate. Harriet Myers, from all things we know, again, she didn't have a a long trail of legal opinions, you know, to look at. She, you know, she hadn't been, you know, a district court judge or anything. Um, and so she seemed kind of moderate. It seemed like a kind of equal switch. The right wing went berserk when he nominated her. They wanted their Federalist trained lackeys who were going to do their bidding, who were going to be far right, so that they were going to, you know, gut all of the anti you know, um, you know, they wanted to gut all kinds of regulations, voting rights, and of course, get rid of abortion rights. For those who don't remember, Sandra Day O'Connor was a, a right-wing um, appointee from Reagan who voted in favor of abortion rights. So the Federalist Society and the right wing went nuts. And so what happened? Harriet Myers withdrew her name from consideration due to family issues, right? And then who did George Bush II um, nominate to replace Sandra Day O'Connor. None other than Samuel Alito. Okay, so this was the first moment where you saw who was truly in charge of the Republican Party. People who were paying attention. Again, how many Americans know this history? I'd say one out of a hundred. It's not that it's hidden. It's just again, Americans don't have a long attention span. So a couple key points here. Samuel Alito, 20 years later, is now authoring this far-right Christian extremist memo to get rid of the right to abortion. And he was Bush 2's appointee. And again, he was the second choice. Bush 2 had nominated someone who likely was not nearly as far-right or far-right at all. And the right wing went berserk. So at that moment, we saw who was in control. The religious right, the far-right extremists controlled the Republican Party way, way long ago. Not under Trump. This is 20 years ago. Now, um, beyond that, in 2004, Bush, you know, was still riding high on the kind of rally around the commander-in-chief because of the 9-11 terrorist attacks and because of the two wars we're in. But, you know, John Kerry is a celebrated Vietnam veteran and a lot of military experience, and he was, you know, he was making a a, a push that you know could to challenge um, Bush for the you know for the 2004 presidency. And so, what did Karl Rove, another sick right wing asshole who was you know George Bush's chief strategist? What did they do? They put anti gay marriage ballot initiatives in the key swing states, so Ohio and other states that we knew were going to be key. They said, to make sure we get the evangelicals to come out, we're going to put anti-gay marriage ballot initiatives on there. And it worked, right? They used the anti-gay bigotry to help rally their base and defeat John Kerry in 2004. So again, George Bush specifically used the the religious right through bigotry, through anti-gay policy to propel himself to victory. And he showed that he was beholden to them. He gave them Samuel Alito, he ran on anti-gay marriage, and he, again, made very clear that he was beholden to them. So I just want to point out, if you don't have George Bush caving to the religious right, you don't have Samuel Alito, you don't have this opinion. Now, moving on to Obama. Obama, he's surfaced again in the news lately. 
Um, you know, he had an interview in the Atlantic. He just did something, um, you know, a big thing on at Stanford. Um, he, you know, he's out with his Netflix documentary, you know, which, you know, that's cool on conservation and all that. But I want to talk about Obama, who I, I love as a person, but I think he really misjudged the threat of the far right and did very little to explain the stakes of the courts, right? So first, he let McConnell basically gut the courts, right? When McConnell became majority leader, he just basically said, I'm not going to let you get any judges. I'm just going to let all these judges retire, get all these vacancies, so that when we get our guy in, we can pack the fucking courts. And that's what gets me so mad when, when people you know, are talking about liberals expanding the courts because of the packing that the right wing done. Liberals are accused of packing the courts. The, one who pa- the way the courts were packed was under Mitch McConnell's tenure in the, in the Obama years, creating all those vacancies so that when Trump came in, he could pack the courts. And of course... What he did with Garland, it was even worse, where he stole the Supreme Court um, you know, pick from, from, from Obama. And the, the key thing is, is that Obama did not fight back. Think about it. Do you remember Obama giving major you know, press briefings, major speeches on the threats of the right wing to the courts? Do you remember when Hillary was running and, 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 and you know, McConnell basically held that seat telling the right wing, you vote for Trump and you get this seat. You don't vote for Trump, you lose it. So he dangled it there for him, which was very effective. Many people voted for Trump because they wanted that Supreme Court seat, right? Did you see any of that urgency from Obama? Did you see him telling people, this is absolutely critical. We have a chance to get a 5-4 moderate liberal balance and, and restore voting rights and gun safety and the environment. I was telling people, I said, even if you hate Hillary Clinton, vote for her because of the court. This is the most consequential moment in history where we hadn't had a liberal Supreme Court for decades and decades. And at this point, because Obama let that seat get stolen and didn't rally, and and then, of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in the last few weeks of Trump's term, the chance of a liberal Supreme Court without expanding the court is close to zero. I'm 53 years old. I've never lived a day in my life with a sane, progressive Supreme Court. And I might never again. I might go through my whole life. Never. one Taking one breath. Think about that. Think about the stakes of that. Having a century, a fucking century, a hundred years of a right-wing court. You think Obama might want to say something about that, right? Um, now, Obama simply believed his own hype too much. I think he thought Hillary was definitely going to win. So, hey, why, you know, why rock the boat? She's going to win anyway, and we'll get that seat back, you know, in a few months, right? And, um, you know, there was a more kind of extremist, not extremist is the wrong word, but a more radical approach he could have done, right? When, when, when Scalia died, there was four liberals and four conservatives on the court. Many legal scholars said that the Constitution is kind of vague. It says the Senate will advise and consent. And Mitch McConnell said, we're not going to advise and consent. We're not even going to hold hearings. What Obama could have done is said, well, you are waiving your right to advise and consent. I'm the president. I'm allowed to nominate a justice. So if you don't want to, you know, advise and consent, I'm just going to put him on the court or put her on the court. 
And and then there would have been four liberals and four conservatives. I assume they would have been deadlocked on whether that was okay. And then there you go. And there were people writing, you know, articles about this, saying, you know, this is not the final word, that Mitch McConnell doesn't have as strong a hand as he thinks he does. But Obama never pushed it. Again, because he wanted to quote respect precedent or the institutions or norms or because he thought Hillary was going to win it wasn't a big deal you know so anyway my point being here is Obama really dropped the ball I mean it was a it was a, a you know a, a big red flag emergency sirens blazing when McConnell just kept letting those seats go unfilled and unfilled so that if a right winger came in after Obama they were going to have a huge thing. And then when it was Garland's, when they stole Garland's seat, you know, they're going to get an extra Supreme Court pick and all these district court judges and to not even comment on that, not even to raise an alarm on that. I mean, it's just, it's such a dereliction of duty that I just don't forgive Obama for that. I really don't. Since I'm piling on Obama right now, I just want to say, you know, again, he gave this interview in The Atlantic and this talk at Stanford, and most of it is about how he underestimated misinformation. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, that's pathetic. That's like the least of your errors, right? Where is it I underestimated the threat of the right wing? I underestimated the authoritarianism. I underestimated the fascism of the Republican Party. I underestimated the role of the courts and how I let them just pack the courts, you know, um, with their right wingers because they... You know, because I wasn't strong enough in fighting back during my terms. I mean, where's that? I mean, misinformation, give me a break. I mean, there's been misinformation in, throughout American history. You know, there's, there, there were, you know, propagandists who owned newspapers and, and, and published lies. You know, throughout American history, of course, Facebook and Twitter are evil and they're making it worse. But that's the biggest thing you underestimated was misinformation? I mean, come on. Obama, he was right for the moment in 2008. He restored a sense of decency to America after Bush and Cheney trashed it. He got us out of Iraq. But it's it's just shocking to me how he's proven just, just constitutionally incapable of seeing the threats to America accurately and rallying people against those threats. He fell asleep at the wheel and he didn't galvanize or warn people sufficiently. And so now he's fighting, you know, old battles and mirages as the right literally tries to erase the progress of the 20th century. So I really think we need new leaders who understand what this fight is about, who understand it at a more fundamental level, and who can articulate them simply and clearly, because clarity and focus is the key. And, you know, again, I think taking away abortion rights is horrible but maybe the, the, the clarity and simplicity of, wow, the right wing took away women's rights and they're going to criminalize abortion for tens of millions of women. You know, maybe that clarity is going to serve a purpose. I don't know. I wish we didn't get to this point. But, you know, clarity and focus is the key. And Obama is just, you know, I just stick to Netflix documentaries about animals, Obama, or, you know, go the Jimmy Carter route and build homes for people and stuff like that because you just didn't understand the threat when you were president and you've had some time to recalibrate and you're still kind of lost. So I love you, Obama, but we need new leaders. You're uh, you're not the man for this, uh, this, this era at this point. 
So with that, um, I'm going to come back with the antidote after the break. Okay, so this antidote is going to be in two parts. The first here is I just really recommend people as hard as it is to deal with reality as clear as possible, even if it's not pretty. I don't think ignorance is bliss. I really don't. We face existential threats in the world and in the United States, and you got to just see them clearly. Like, again, my critique of Obama is he didn't get it and he still doesn't get it. And it hurt us. It hurt our movement for progressive liberal values. Of all the Democrats, probably the only leader who I think gets it is Nancy Pelosi. I mean, you listen to her statements when she sees issues and she's raw and hardcore and she gets it. And by the way, that's why the right hates her, because she sees them for who they are and she calls them out. You know, all the other... People, you know, Biden has moments where he gets it, but then he'll call Mitch McConnell a friend. Really? Really, Biden? The guy who stole a Supreme Court justice, who replaced the liberal icon Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the last few weeks of Trump's term, who said he'd support this traitor and seditionist in 2024 if he runs again? McConnell's your friend? Right? That just makes a mockery of the seriousness of the situation. I'm not saying Biden and Schumer and Democratic leaders should come out and say, you know, McConnell's the devil and I fucking hate him. But they should say Mitch McConnell is a right wing extremist and he represents everything I oppose and I'm going to fight him tooth and nail. Right? Like he's not your fucking buddy. Give me a break. You know, it makes Democrats seem out of touch. Like it's just one big club of elitists. And they kind of, you know, they they laugh and chuckle in the back room and then they go out and pretend to fight. No, this is a real fucking fight, man. Take it seriously. McConnell's not your fucking friend. He'll stab you in the face, you know? And I want to then mention part two. So part one is just seeing things clearly, right? And, And dealing with reality as it is, not as you want it to be. And then, you know, President Clinton is famous for saying, Strong and wrong beats weak and right. And whether he actually came up with that himself or he was, you know, had heard that somewhere else, it's basically attributed to, you know, Bill Clinton. But my question is, how about strong and right? Right? We the right wing is, you know, I don't even wouldn't call it strong, but it's certainly confident and, you know, and 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 boisterous and wrong. And certainly the liberals are generally right but weak. But how about strong and right? Can we do that? Right? Isn't that the winning ticket? Do we have to choose between strong and wrong and weak and right? How about strong and right? Right? Well, not every single point of the liberal agenda in Bernie Sanders' head is perfect or correct or even popular. The overwhelming majority of the liberal progressive program that I talk about on this podcast that is part of the Democratic platform for years and years and years, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, immigrant rights, higher taxes on the wealthy, 
you know, better regulations for clean air and water, for renewable energy, gun safety regulation. This stuff is right. It's popular, right? This is what we need to go big on, right? Can we be strong and confident about things that are popular, right? Like, give me a break, people. Let's step up, right? This is going to be a big year for the country, and the Democrats need to get real, right? We can do our part. So this is part two of the antidote here by being strong and confident in our liberal progressive values, right? And let's not pretend that the right wing in America is some legitimate center-right party. It's not. It's more akin to an extremist neo-Nazi party, and we should treat them as such, right? So again, clarity, vision, strength, and confidence. Let's be strong and right, right? That's the winning ticket. And I'm really looking to Democratic leaders in this trying times. We got fascism, We got the end of women's rights in a big way. Like, I want to see people step up um, unambiguously, no timidity, right, and take a stand. And then I think people can rally behind it. So let's all do our part. So with that, everybody, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, please rate it, share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. And with that, everybody, be well, take care, have a great rest of the week.